have one of those pew Bibles? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. That as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called her name Jesus. Aaron, if you'll come up here, I'll pray for you. God, it's good to gather here as your people to worship you, um, to just respond to who you are and what you've done for us, to sit here with our um, Bibles open, Lord, um, to just hear from you. I pray you would give us open hearts, willing to hear, willing to respond. Use Aaron. Uh, we're, we're thankful for his brotherhood, his friendship, for Caitlin, for their family. Thankful that he um, serves us in this way that he has a zeal for you, he has a longing for your word, that he puts in the time, um, the study time, and just the hard time. And, and we just pray, Lord, that by your grace, um, we would just be able to hear from you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you. Good morning, Karsh Church. Uh, if you're live streaming, if you're listening on the podcast, good morning to you. Morning, Grandma. You got your computer figured out, um, or should I say, Merry Christmas? Because today is the first day of Advent, the first Sunday of Advent. Um, I don't think even the most Scroogely among us can say anymore that it's too early for Christmas greetings, Christmas music, Christmas decorations, Christmas parties, all that good stuff. So, Merry Christmas. Uh, and speaking of Christmas parties, I know there are a handful of folks here at our church who work over at BU. And I just have a kind of a question whether or not, you know, is that annual Christmas party as amazing as I hear it is? Uh, or is it just kind of like an inside joke that you guys have where you build it up to everyone who doesn't work there? Um, I had a buddy who worked there uh, a while back. He and his wife moved away from Columbia in the spring. I'm pretty sure he still works there, but just remotely. Uh, but my wife, Caitlin, and I, we had dinner with them shortly before they left. And we said, you know, what are you gonna miss most about living in Columbia? And this guy, you know, lets out a big sigh. He's got this really downcast look on his face. The VU Christmas party. That's what he was going to miss the most. And from that moment on, uh, I kind of set it in my head that that needs to be one of my goals is to make it to one of those parties. But for me, 
a lot of my uh, work-related Christmas party experiences have mostly been as Caitlin's plus one. Have you ever been in that kind of a situation? So it was a little bit awkward. Uh, the majority of the party, you know, majority of people there, they're work BFFs, and they're all, you know, hanging out in the middle of the room. They're having a big old laugh riot about, you know, the typo that Sharon left in the company-wide memo. She didn't even notice, can you believe it? Um, or something like that. And then a small chunk of the party, the chunk that I'm usually in, is a bunch of totally random, unconnected people in any way who don't know each other at all. And yeah, we're, we're cordial. Um, the people from the office, they're always welcoming and, and nice to you, but you know, you're just kind of there. Just kind of there. Uh, and I, can, I feel like we can sometimes treat the characters or doctrines of these Christmas passages in that way sometimes. You know, angels and shepherds show up. We, we read Luke 2. Okay, hey, it's time to get this party started. And then, you know, a little bit later, okay, Magi are here. It's time for the white elephant gift exchange. And then we read this passage. It's like, okay, virgin birth. Boss is here. You know, everyone be on your best behavior. And then we get to Joseph, and we can kind of like, um, yeah. You know Joseph, you know. This is Mary's husband. Oh. Uh, did you say Joseph? Yeah, Joseph. Oh. That, that's Jesus' dad, right? <laughs> Either way. It's good to see you, buddy. Grab yourself a piece of pie. Glad you're here again this year. And so, <laughs> even though we could spend several sermons, you know, going through... The, the virgin birth. It's absolutely critical doctrine that uh, too many people nowadays would just kind of let fall by the wayside. Or uh, Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, we could do a whole sermon series just on those things. I think this time around, we ought to better incorporate Joseph into our Christmas festivities. So, a few weeks ago, we began to embark on this new sermon series uh, through the book of Matthew with this special focus on how Jesus is our king and how we live as citizens of his kingdom. And I think as we look at this passage, we'll see how God makes Joseph kind of into this model parent of God's soon-to-be anointed king. We'll see what Christmas looks like in the kingdom of God, what that first Christmas meant for Joseph, and then how Jesus exemplifies Christmas in the kingdom. So let's dive in. Uh, remember from a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Kevin preached through Jesus' genealogy. Matthew is setting us up. He's preparing to introduce Israel's long-awaited Messiah to us, their chosen king. And where he picks up with the narrative focus is just one generation behind. It's with the Messiah's immediate family. And while Luke's gospel spends most of his focus on Mary, uh, Matthew dedicates most of his family focus on Joseph. In these next several passages, he's kind of going to be the primary actor or the family leader 
in these Christmas narratives. So Matthew gives us this backstory. There's the first couple of verses in our passage. Here are the details surrounding the Messiah's birth. His mom is betrothed to this man, Joseph, but she got pregnant with the Messiah before they got married because of something miraculous that God was doing. And just as kind of a quick point of cultural clarification, uh, this idea of betrothal in the New Testament, it's a little bit similar, but it has some distinctions from our concept of engagement. Today, uh, there's not a legal status called engaged. It's Facebook status. It's not a legal designation. Engaged couples, you know, they still need to wait before they, you know, merge their finances, you know, file their taxes jointly, um, live together. It usually takes a lot, um, and it's kind of a big deal when an engaged couple breaks up. But a betrothal is, at a minimum, this year-long step. It's not even the only step in the marriage process for Jewish people back then. Uh, it's a year-long process with basically all of the legal and societal recognition and responsibilities of marriage, uh, but none of the perks. So notice this. We say that an engaged couple breaks up. But Matthew says that Joseph was planning on divorcing Mary. This whole Messiah baby thing is you know, quite the big deal if you're Joseph. But it's precisely this prenatal predicament that sets us up to see what Christmas looks like in the kingdom of God. So firstly, Christmas in the kingdom looks like justice and righteousness. Look at your Bibles in verse 19. It says, Joseph, being a just man, resolved to divorce her quietly. And we'll come back to that other part in just a minute. And just as a reminder, uh, I'm reading out of the ESV, but if you're not, this verse probably says Joseph was a righteous man. And either word is, is a good translation because of how closely tied these words are in Scripture. But what does it mean for Matthew to say that Joseph is a righteous or a just man? What he does not mean here is that Joseph has already, um, in how Paul might use these words, been justified or been given God's righteousness. Um, to be a righteous person as a first century Jew means that you were rigorously observant of God's instructions to his people. It meant that you were a thorough and consistent follower of the Torah. To be called a righteous person in Joseph's context was not just a religious regard that he held, but also a kind of social status as well. It was a reputation that he developed over a life of pursuing God. Joseph is the kind of man where when he learns that his betrothed is pregnant before their wedding, he knows that she's either left him or someone else has taken her. And in either case, he knows that the law is pretty clear that this is someone he should now not marry. We know this is his thought because um, he decided to divorce her once he learned that she was pregnant. This is before he knew that it was through the Holy Spirit. 
He's willing to do what God word, what God's word commands, even when it's painful or difficult. And it can be easy for us to think of marriage in these more ancient or patriarchal cultures um, as you know, one guy and his parents they simply walk around town and find their favorite single lady, and they you know just decide that that's who the son's going to marry. Um, that did happen, but. We have to keep in mind that Mary and Joseph are poor Galileans. They're poor Galileans. This is not a marriage for financial gain or political power. Mary and her family, it's pretty likely that these were people that Joseph and his family crossed paths with on a regular basis around Nazareth. And so when Joseph, you know, makes his intentions known to Mary's father, uh, she probably would have even had some kind of say about whether or not she actually wanted to marry him. Uh, to be obedient to God's words then for Joseph would have meant leaving or sending away someone he genuinely cared about. So what is the difficult obedience that God is calling us to? Where is God calling us to stand up for righteousness? Um, obviously, Thanksgiving was just this past weekend. Uh, and I know that for some, seeing family, it's not always the most joyous part of the holidays. Uh, it can be a major source of conflict or stress. Maybe for you, pursuing righteousness looks like sticking up for that outcast member of your family when everyone else starts to pile on, to give them a hard time when they're being hurtful or rude. It might look like pulling aside a member of your family who, who's even a believer and confronting them in gentleness with the gospel uh, when they begin conflating Christian truths with American nationalism. I also know that uh, Black Friday has already passed us by, but this whole kind of gift-giving season is going to be a lot more different, probably a lot more difficult than those in the past. Prices are higher than normal. Um, products and employees are much fewer than they are normally. Living justly, living righteously, is going to look like, at a minimum, Showing kindness and patience to fellow shoppers. Treating store employees with the dignity and the respect that they deserve. And tipping our servers well. These things aren't always easy, um, but they're part of the way of life that God has called his people to. Christmas in God's kingdom looks like justice and righteousness. In addition to that, Christmas in the kingdom looks like compassion for those on the margins of society. Let's look back at verse 19. Joseph, being unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Same verse, just focusing on the other part this time. Joseph is a man who displays the compassion 
that characterizes God's kingdom. It's easy for us to read this passage uh, and think that this idea of a quiet divorce is more related to Joseph's compassion, the unwillingness to put her to shame, than it is his righteousness or his commitment to following God's instructions. But I'm not actually sure that's the case. I think we need to read this and think, because Joseph was righteous and compassionate, he planned to divorce her quietly. The quiet divorce is the result of that inherent tension we feel between Joseph's righteousness and compassion. This whole ordeal has brought, really, public embarrassment to Joseph and his family. Uh, the Torah, it allows for divorce, but also expects that someone who commits adultery, remember that's the common assumption about Mary, uh, has to be punished. Yet, as we've discussed, Mary is someone that Joseph genuinely cares about, hence the compassion. He probably doesn't wish to do her harm. And we know this, again, because the solution he settles on is a quiet divorce. Aside from any formal punishment that others may have um, exacted, the possible life ahead for Mary as uh, a divorced single mother who had this label of adulteress attached to her um, would not have been the envy of anyone. There's very little chance she would have been able to find another husband or even a means of support other than begging. And so Joseph wants to do his best to keep from dragging Mary and her family publicly in order to give her the best chance to have a, a good future. Joseph is the kind of man where even when his reputation is the one on the line, his focus is on the woman whose future is on the line. His righteousness and desire to follow God's instructions have shaped his heart to be like God's, to have compassion and to give grace to someone who's going to be excluded or scorned by society. He's willing to forego his um, public vindication by publicly condemning Mary, and he settles to be someone who looks as if they've been cheated on. So again, to whom is God calling us to be compassionate towards this Christmas season? Who can we identify as someone who's more on the outside than the inside and show them God's kindness? Uh, I know so many of you have already grabbed um, some of those care kit tags on the tree outside. Um, amen. Keep up the good work. I'm proud of you guys. Um, those are going to go to serve refugees in our community. Maybe you or your missional community have an opportunity to serve, clothe, care for um, your senior adult neighbors as it gets colder. Maybe you and your family have the chance to host an international student or someone who's single at your holiday dinner. Maybe, even, we'll take Jesus' words in Luke 6.30 literally when he tells us 
Give to everyone who begs of you. Again, these are all challenges that I doubly give to myself. But these are the people whose heart, whose, uh, these are the people who are most on God's heart. Christmas in the kingdom looks not only like justice and righteousness, but also compassion to those on the margins. And then finally, um, Christmas in the kingdom looks like radical self-sacrifice. Up until now, we've kind of been reading through this passage um, from Joseph's perspective of not knowing what's actually gone on with um, Mary's pregnancy. But halfway through this passage, Joseph learns that Mary's pregnancy is the result of something special that God is doing. An angel, uh, a messenger from God, shows up in Joseph's dream. And normally, whenever these messengers show up to people, they always start by telling them, don't be afraid. Presumably because when an angel appears out of nowhere, you're terrified. Makes sense. And this angel does tell Joseph not to be afraid, but not of the angel itself. Apparently, an angelic messenger pops up in Joseph's dream, and that's not the thing that he fears most. Down in verse 20, let's read the next verse. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Angel pops up. Don't be afraid to marry Mary. So many of the emotions that Joseph must have been feeling and processing, uh, they make sense in a pretty straightforward kind of way. Maybe anger or sadness or depression or bitterness or feelings of having been betrayed. But why fear? Um, it's because if Joseph were to go through with marrying Mary, it would be an act of radical self-sacrifice. Obviously, the decisions to get married or have kids, these are you know, some of the biggest decisions that any person can you know, decide between. Uh, but marrying Mary and raising Jesus as his son was perhaps even weightier, an even weightier life-altering decision than it would have normally been. It's easy for us, again, to look down on maybe the intelligence of you know, ancient or pre-modern people. Um, but you know what everyone could do back in the first century? Count to nine. Everyone in Nazareth would be able to figure out, based on the date of the wedding feast, that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. And that would be something that followed his family for a lifetime. We see a couple of instances of this in the Gospels later on. In Mark chapter 6, <clears throat> during Jesus' ministry, he has critics approach him and they say things like this. Isn't this Mary's son? When families were always 
identified through their father. And John 6, this critics say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. These are slurs. Like, as simply as I can say it, it would be highly inappropriate for us to use the language that we have for what these people are saying about Jesus. And these things followed Jesus and his family for 30 years. Jesus is an adult at this point. He's doing his ministry. So when we talk about what that first Christmas meant for Joseph, one of my favorite commenters says this. He says, Christmas was the day that Joseph lost his reputation. Christmas was the day that Joseph began to suffer because of his relationship to Jesus. And Christmas was the day that Joseph, that the way Joseph related to his community and his culture was completely altered. It's an act of radical self-sacrifice. So Joseph has this angelic dream. Messenger tells him, hey, still marry this woman, Mary. And just compassionate Joseph, in verse 24, we read, he does so. Not only that, we see in the last verse of our passage, verses 24 and 25, Joseph calls the baby Jesus. And that may seem like an insignificant detail or a foregone conclusion to us. Well, of course he called the baby's name Jesus. Like, that's what the angel told him to do. But for Joseph, naming the baby signifies his legal adoption of the son. Joseph goes all in, and he commits to a life of being hated and excluded by his neighbors. This is the man that God chooses to raise his son, the chosen king of God's kingdom. Because you see, Jesus is the kind of king who is justice and righteousness, who is compassionate to the marginalized from the margins, and the one who made the ultimate sacrifice. If you can, flip over with me to Philippians chapter 2. It's on page 980 of the Pew Bible. It's this beautiful early church hymn that Paul recites about the incarnation and the exaltation of Jesus. Starting in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. There it is. That's the beauty of the incarnation. Jesus, a compassionate king, emptying himself to become like us, to become not just a human, but a servant of all. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Jesus was fully obedient to the Father, fulfilling the whole Torah. He's the only one who's perfectly righteous. Let's keep going. Obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Carus, King Jesus, made the most radical self-sacrifice when he took our place, paid our price for the sin that we committed on the cross. But thank God that it doesn't even stop there. Let's keep reading. Therefore, God has highly exalted him when he raised him from the dead, when he raised him into heaven, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, this Christmas season, let's together remember our citizenship in God's kingdom and our King, Jesus. Let's live out this Christmas like we are in the kingdom of God because we are. That's one of the gifts that Jesus came to bring us. He didn't just call this guy, Joseph, to highlight to us a godly man. Joseph was a part of God's great plan to bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Friends, as if the forgiveness of our sins wasn't more than enough, Jesus establishes God's kingdom on the cross. When we pledge allegiance to him, when we put our faith and our trust in him, he gives us his spirit and his grace to live in this kingdom kind of way, to live out this life of justice, righteousness, compassion, and self-sacrifice. So let's go do it. Even this afternoon, let's go back into our neighborhood and our city and live out this first Christmas way of life. Let's pray. God, we bless you this morning. You're good, and you're great, and you're so much better towards us than we could ever deserve or repay. God, we thank you for your word this morning, for the example of this man, Joseph. God, even more than him, we thank you for your son, Jesus, our King. As we disperse here later today, God, would you continue to shape us as disciples, as citizens of your kingdom? Would we live and work and relax and serve and celebrate um, in a way that displays the justice and the righteousness and the compassion and the self-sacrifice you show towards us? God bless the rest of our time together this morning. Would you give us unity with one another around your table? Help us to remember in a new way who Jesus is and what he's done for us as we eat this meal together. It's in his name we pray. Amen.